This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Uh, hello and welcome to this episode in our podcast series, Doing Translational Research. I'm Carl Pillemer, your host, and I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research at Cornell University. Uh, And in this series, we speak with researchers who are trying to bridge the gap between research and real life, extending the knowledge they create into real-world settings, and we talk a little bit about both the benefits of that approach and some of the challenges. Um, And my guest today is Professor Christopher Wildeman, who is an Associate Professor in Policy Analysis and Management in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell. He's also the co-director of the National Data Archive on Child Abuse and Neglect and a faculty fellow here uh, in the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. And we'll be talking about his research interests, but let me just say that they revolve around the consequences of mass imprisonment for inequality, though with an emphasis on families, health, and children. He also has interests in child welfare more generally, especially as it relates to child maltreatment and to the foster care system. And Chris, welcome to Doing Translational Research. Thanks, Carl. Uh, you know, I wonder if you might begin by just telling us a little bit uh, um, about your research, if you were going to sum up you know, the main question it addresses or what issues you're most concerned with, uh, sort of in a capsule description for us? Sure. I mean, I think my research really revolves around trying to think about the prevalence, causes, and consequences of contact with the criminal justice system and the child welfare system, um, with special emphasis on American families, although I also do a bunch of research on Danish families. Um, And so... To that end, most of my work has started by estimating what proportion of families will ever come in contact with the child welfare system or come in contact with the criminal justice system, and then trying to tease out especially sort of how that further disrupts or or potentially stabilizes in some situations family life. Could you share with us just... uh... Um, and this may be a little bit of a hard question, but a couple of findings or recent findings, or what would an interesting finding be that uh, pursuing this line of research you've come up with? Sure. I think, I mean, in the in the most recent work that I've done on the child welfare system, I think there there were a couple really interesting findings. So the first is that roughly one in eight American children will ever have a confirmed um, child maltreatment case. Um and that's dramatically higher than historically we've thought and, and hopefully, I think, situates um, contact with Child Protective Services as sufficiently common that it's something that we can't ignore in sort of the broader social science research, which is essentially in economics, sociology, criminology, and demography. Child welfare system has is, is pretty much been ignored. Um, <clears throat> we also found that about one in four African-American children will ever have a confirmed maltreatment case. Um, and, and that sort of illustrated something about sort of how high the con- or how heavy the concentration is among um, poor minority sort of families. Um, so, so that, I think, is, is really the, the most recent finding that we've been really excited about. Um, 
We've also done some parallel work where we look at what proportion of kids will ever end up in foster care, and have found that about 15% of Native American children will ever end up formally in the foster care system. So, so not just living with relatives, uh, other relatives for a couple months because mom and dad are having problems at, at home. This is actually formally being placed either in kinship or non-kinship foster care through this sort of broader government intervention. I actually, I find those statistics absolutely astonishing. Um, as you and I have talked about, I do work in elder abuse. And in that case of all the actual cases of elder abuse, only a tiny minority ever come to the attention of public authorities. It sounds here either that's bad news with um, children because even that one in eight is only the tip of the iceberg or it's good news that the system is actually detecting those kids. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it, um, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to think about it. One of the really tricky things with using these sort of official administrative contacts as proxies for actual maltreatment is that it's not clear to what degree they're sort of underreporting or overreporting, and especially to what degree that works differently for different racial and ethnic groups. So it it could be, for instance, that there's underreporting of maltreatment for white children and overreporting of maltreatment for African American children, and that actually leads to larger disparities in child welfare contact than than there should be. Um, I, I think. The, the really interesting thing with these findings is that historically there's been these formal contact numbers for child maltreatment, and those tend to suggest that about 0.8% of U.S. children will ever or come in contact with Child Protective Services in any given year. And then we've had these self-reported cumulative prevalence estimates, um, most of which have come out of David Finkelhor's shop, where... Mm where you used to be. Um, And those estimates suggest sort of cumulative prevalence of self-reported child maltreatment that are more in the sort of 40 to 50% range. And so I thought it was encouraging that these cumulative prevalence of confirmed maltreatment estimates at least get somewhat closer to what we see um, in the self-reported numbers. Oh, that sounds like incredibly useful uh, um, um, information. Um, and can you say a word? I know that your work on incarceration and families of people in prison and that whole topic has gotten a lot of attention. Can you say just a little bit more about the, what your work on that is like? And it seems like it also relates to inequality issues. Yeah, it does. It does relate to inequality. So I'll um, I'll tell you I'll tell you first about some of the new work that I'm doing now, um, partially because it has been funded primarily by the Bradford Brenner Center. Oh, that's uh, good to know. <laughs> um, and so a lot of that work tries to figure out sort of how large the stigma attached to paternal incarceration is. And so we've been using this experimental vignette design where we experimentally vary whether a dad is listed as incarcerated or just out of the picture more broadly. And then we see how that affects teachers' expectations of students. Um, And at least in the pilot data, we've been finding pretty large effects of of paternal incarceration on teachers' expectations of students. So depending on the behavioral indicator that we're looking at, having a father incarcerated increased teachers' expectations of children's behavioral problems between about 20 and 40%. Wow. So, So, And that would be 
considered quite a substantial effect mm-hmm. in the sort of child development literature. The the earlier work that I've done, pretty much all of which was in collaboration with my um, my good friend Sarah Wakefield, who's at Rutgers Newark, um, tried to first assess the cumulative prevalence of paternal incarceration for kids and then isolate the individual level effects of paternal incarceration on kids to try to get a sense of how much mass imprisonment had exacerbated racial disparities in child well-being and and sort of so kind of piecing things together using these different methods to get a sense of how much it affected inequality and just to highlight two quick things there so the first is that um, we estimated that about 25% of African-American children would ever have their father sent to prison. Um, this is prison incarceration, not jail incarceration, mm-hmm. right? This isn't dad went away for three days because he got in a bit of a tiff with somebody at the bar. This is dad was sentenced to at least a year in most states and even under the best scenario would have been out no less than eight months after his sentence probably. Um about 3% of white children experience this event, and so there are these sort of dramatic disparities in the cumulative prevalence of, of paternal imprisonment. This is totally obvious, right? I mean, I think whenever you're doing stuff on racial disparities in the criminal justice system, the, 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 the fact that there are disparities is going to be obvious, but the actual sort of level of those disparities was surprising. Yeah, I think when you can attach those kind of numbers to it, it's a different from just giving the overall observation that the phenomenon exists, it would seem to have more impact that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hopefully. <laughs> well, what can I ask? Because one thing that we're interested in is that the degree to which people's research lives have interacted with either people who are providing services like community agencies or professionals or policymakers. And have there, um, in what way have you either interacted uh, with uh, people sort of in the real world, or do you feel that your findings have had uh, diffusion in them? Or, Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, especially recently, I think that's been the case. Um, you know, I finished my PhD in 2008, um, and for the first five or six years afterwards, I was a good, you know, assistant professor minion and didn't engage with policymakers or community folks in, in any way that might jeopardize my probability of getting tenured, which was um, pretty much what we were told to, to do where I was before I came here. Um, but more recently, I've been trying to engage folks on the ground um, more directly. So a lot of that has had to do more with engaging with policymakers. So especially having conversations with state and federal officials about criminal justice policy and how um, how these policies affect sort of families and especially kids. Um, I was at a, a White House event on children with incarcerated parents a couple of years ago, um, and I've done some briefings down in D.C. Um, so, so most of the work has been uh, around parental incarceration has been directly in, in sort of conversation with policymakers, but a lot of the child welfare research has been more directly with sort of child welfare agencies and child welfare advocates. And so um, I got some funding from Casey Family Services for some research that I'm doing on essentially geographic variation in what proportion of kids ever come in contact with the child welfare system. Um, And 
I found out from the folks who funded the research there that all the child welfare agencies that they engage with have this like one in eight sort of statistic oh. kind of plastered all over their all over their walls now. And so that was, you know, that was nice because I, I never wanted to do this sort of disconnected only for my own sort of intellectual and professional benefit sort of research, which is why I do work on the things that I do work on. But it's been, it's been nice feeling like those things are starting to get picked up a bit more. I've, I've recently started trying to work a little bit more with community organizations, especially around parental incarceration. And, um, I've really enjoyed those conversations. I think those conversations are also really tricky in some ways because folks have rolled out a program and are heavily invested in it and believe that it works and can see times that it, that it has worked really well. And and it's really sort of their life's work. And, you know, I'm excited about those things, but then I also want to think about things like whether we can randomly assign things or how we can, you know, control for other sort of unobserved differences between kids or if there might not be a different sort of program that would have even more of a beneficial effect. And so I think there ends up being this sort of natural tension around um, sort of what I would like to see and what they think they already know and and sort of um, seeing where that conversation, how that conversation develops has been has been really, really fun and is part of why I've been so excited to become more and more involved with the Bromfenbrenner Center. Well, I think that's such a good description, too, of what all of us encounter um, as we try to deal with people in community agencies and actually do more rigorous research there. Um, I can't resist asking, so you uh, are a relatively recently promoted um, associate professor, right? And so you... uh, um, I wonder if you could give any advice to other faculty or to younger faculty who are considering taking the research they do in the laboratory or the kind, you know, like you, you or I would try to publish in the American Journal of Sociology and doing this this work in real world context. Or uh, you've mentioned some challenges, but is there anything you might, you know, um, a suggest to somebody who wants to make their research more translational or any concerns you've had? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think the big, I think the big thing is that it, it really depends on the methods of analysis that you use and the sort of research design that you use. So, you know, as a demographer, I mostly just see millions of observations in some random, hyper boring sort of data set, and then try to um, structure those data in such a way that they're interesting. And so, I think for folks who are doing this like very highly quantitative sort of big data sort of stuff, thinking about moving in a more translational direction right in the lead-in to tenure or, or afterwards, I think makes the work a lot stronger and also helps you get sort of the through the post-tenure blues, which um, seem to affect almost everybody I know. But then I think, you know, for for folks who are more interested in individual level effects or community level effects. I mean, I, I increasingly feel like you, you just can't do good work 
without engaging with those folks in some direct way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm going to go off script a little bit here, but it's so interesting. I think that people associate doing this more translational work with service. Um, and indeed, there are some quest- there's some scientific questions, I think, that you can only really address if you test them out in real-world settings. Um, and I've found that people can get the same kind of publications that they get by doing more sort of basic research, as long as the research is still done in a rigorous way. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think there are certainly more, there are certainly more complications um, with doing the research, but I think the research is stronger and the ceiling for the research is higher. It's also, I mean, I think one of the, one of the really great things with doing this sort of research is there's, there's no risk that your findings present this portrait that's totally orthogonal to people's experiences in the way that if you're just looking at some sort of quantitative data set chugging along through the numbers, you could come up with something that's that's either just wrong but looks right in the data or that is totally useless to the folks who are experiencing the event. And I think, you know, having this sort of creative tension with folks who are more on the ground, I think really strengthens the work and makes the work more helpful to those Mm. folks. Well, that is so interesting. And let me ask you one last question before we have to go. So as you think about the work you're doing in these areas, we like to ask everybody if there were one or two real world changes that you could affect based on your scientific work, what might they be? Or at a minimum of what would you like the world to know, but in particular act on, is there something from your research that, if you were recommending to a policymaker, would stand out above others? I mean, I think the big, I mean, I think the big sort of take home message that I would want folks to get from my work more broadly is just that child welfare contact and criminal justice contact aren't these things that happen only in the most unfortunate or dysfunctional families. These are actually events that are actually quite common, especially for folks living in neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage. And so the idea that we can address the dramatic childhood inequalities that we face in the U.S. without thinking about these two systems of social control, I think, is is fanciful. So I, I hope that's the big sort of take home from the things that I've done to this point. Well, great, Chris. And thanks so much. I wish we had more time because you really do exemplify, I think, a lot of what we're trying to do here to get faculty um, engaged in this kind of translational thinking. So thanks for being with us, and we look forward to our listeners joining us on our next episode of Doing Translational Research. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.